Kia ora. it's so great to be with you uh, today. My name is Joshua Taylor and I'm a vicar down south in Timaru. Um, and my wife Jo and I actually were up in Auckland for our sabbatical um, just last summer and got to meet a few of you as we came along uh, to St Augustine. So it's nice to see you, it's nice to be with you um, this morning to reconnect with you online. Um, we've been praying for you guys, as we know it must be really tough uh, being in Alert Level 4 and lockdown um, over these weeks and so do know um, our prayers are with you. A while ago, Newt asked me to preach on this topic uh, for the series on formation that you're working through. And today we're looking at faith formation in the second half of life, and particularly the topic of the dark night of the soul. If you're diving into the series here, then to navigate yourself, I would recommend that you go back to the first talk uh, of the series on the podcast in which Matthew Newton looks at uh, the stages of faith and growth as we follow Jesus. What I'm digging into today relates to the transition between stage four and five named in that talk, what can be referred to as the wall or the dark night of the soul. So before we get into it, let's just take a moment uh, to pause and to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from you. And so we pray that you'd speak to us afresh as we gather around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So about a decade ago, I was at a Christian conference with some friends. A whole lot of churches were gathering together for this really exciting conference. And the worship band started doing their thing. Um, and everyone was in this room together praising God. And there were hands in the air, people were dancing. At one time it felt like the whole room was praying in tongues, uh, in, you know, in full volume. People were uh, sweating enthusiastically and singing loudly at the top of their lungs. And I just found myself standing there. Uh, just standing there with my hands at my side, feeling out of place. I wasn't being cynical. I really wanted to be in the same place as everybody else. I really wanted to, uh, you know, be enjoying this space. I really loved God. And yet I felt like an alien that had wandered from outer space and just ended up in this room full of people. And I just couldn't feel it. I couldn't connect with it. To me, I had no special sense that God was in that room. In fact, the more I stood there, the more anxious I felt. Thoughts started running through my head like, have I done something wrong? Is there some kind of big sin in my life that means I can't sense God's presence? I vividly remember a deep sadness wash over me that I just couldn't connect. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever been the person in the room when everyone else seems to get it, but you just don't feel it? Have you ever experienced that feeling of wanting to connect with God, but feeling like God is distant? Today we're going to explore this sense of God's absence. In Psalm 77 we find this, from verses 1 to 9. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, 
the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? The psalm names the perceived absence of God. The psalmist cries out in the night, stretching out his hands in the dark, reaching out, and yet has no sense of God's presence or consolation. And you can feel the pain as you hear these words. Where is God? And yet if we turn to Psalm 139, we hear the very opposite. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The story of the Bible makes it very clear that this world is God's. This is God's creation. Our very life is a gift. In him we live and move and have our being. This is true. And yet at the same time, it seems almost universally true that people have this experience at one time or another in their lives, that God is just nowhere to be seen. That God has gone MIA. And we name this as the perceived absence of God because this experience is a lot more about our perceptions, our experience than anything else. And yet we don't talk about it much. It's kind of awkward. In many circles, we're a bit reticent about it. We'd feel embarrassed to bring it up at a prayer meeting. And yet the Bible's full of metaphors for the perceived absence of God. It's not shy about addressing this topic. And it gives us lots of permission to wrestle with it. So I want to give a quick overview here. Strap yourselves in. It'll be a whistle-stop tour through some metaphors in Scripture for the perceived absence of God. First, we hear about a kind of topography of God's absence. The experience of God's absence is like darkness. We heard this in Psalm 77, which we just read. It's like a desert. Psalm 42 expresses this, saying, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? It's like sinking into the mire or deep waters. Psalm 69 names this. John 15 gives another image of it being like a vine that's being pruned. We also hear a lot about uh, not only the topography of the perceived absence of God, we hear a whole host of feelings associated with the sense of God's absence too. It's like being lost, confused or disoriented. Isaiah 59 says, Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. It's named as being forgotten, forsaken, rejected. We see this in Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's described as God hiding from us. Isaiah 45 and Psalm 30 capture this. It's an experience of God as utterly silent. Habakkuk chapter 1 says, How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. All these scriptures capture the experience of God's perceived absence. This sense of God's absence is not unusual. It's not strange. It's something experienced by many people and for lots of different reasons. 
One expression of this absence has been named as the dark night of the soul. And we're going to look at exactly what this means. Though the language sounds sinister, the dark night's not something from a Stephen King novel, but rather the darkness is about the hiddenness of what God is doing uh, and what is going on in our soul. It refers to the work that God is doing beyond our knowledge and our understanding, under the surface or in the dark. The language of the dark night of the soul originates uh, with two 16th century Spanish mystics, St. John, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. And St. John of the Cross wrote this book called The Dark Night of the Soul. He explores God's absence here and he names the journey of growth through times of darkness. And if you want to deep dive, if you want to get right into it, this is a great read. However, the most helpful definition that I've heard is from John Mark Comer. He names the dark night soul as this. He says, It's a season in our apprenticeship to Jesus where he intentionally takes away not his presence, but the felt sense of his presence in order to do a work of purgation and preparation in us for greater levels of intimacy, freedom, peace, and love. We'll come back to this. But sometimes one of the most helpful ways to define something is to talk about what it isn't. The language of the dark night of the soul has been used somewhat flippantly in lots of circles or has been confused as well. So what the dark night isn't? Well, first of all, the dark night's not suffering. It can and often sits alongside times of suffering, but it's not a way of naming general suffering and pain, like the grief of losing someone we love or an illness that's causing ongoing hurt. These are terrible, but not what St. John's talking about strictly. Neither does it name weary, weariness or exhaustion. For parents out there, uh, for those of us who have young children or have babies who are waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning and screaming, it's pretty tempting to name this as the dark night of the soul. But it's not what it's about. It isn't a time of doubt or deconstruction either, where we wrestle intellectually with our faith. I think actually my sense of God's absence in the story that I told at the beginning was probably in this category. Uh, but that's another story altogether. It's not to be confused with clinical depression. It can, however, sit alongside it. And I think this is one to be really careful about. And I'd recommend Dr. Gerald May's book on this, uh, called The Dark Night of the Soul, also. He's a medical doctor and he explores the relationship between the dark night and depression. But the dark night is none of these things. Rather, it's a time of growth which God leads us into. It's a time in which God is at work in his perceived absence. During the lockdown in 2020, uh, my eldest daughter learned how to ride her bike, which was great. Um, we hadn't done the training wheel thing, and so we just decided to go out on the street um, with a big kid's bike and go for it. Um, so we started by me running alongside her, holding onto the back of the seat, kind of trying to keep up while she learned to balance and to pedal and to work out this whole feeling of riding her bike. Um, and then I let go. Uh, she wasn't really keen for me to let go, and yet I knew if she was going to ride her bike at some stage, I had to let go of the seat. So um, when she was looking forward, when she was holding onto the handlebars and she was you know, sufficiently distracted pedaling along, I just sort of let go and I ran beside her. As soon as she realized, um, 
that I'd let go. She just burst into hysterical tears. And I felt um, like that was kind of a low point in my parenting. I felt kind of bad about that. Um, but she kind of had the biking thing down. I had to convince her uh, to trust me again, to get back up on the bike, and that I'd tell her next time I was going to let go. Um, but we did this rinse and repeat for a couple of days um, where I'd let her ride and let go of the seat and she would go for it. And for me, this captures a sense of what's going on in the dark night of the soul. Because when we first become Christians, we feel like God is super close. I remember when I was 16 and I became a Christian, just an overwhelming sense of joy and love and a sense that God was really close to me. And I wanted to go to everything I could, to every Bible study, to turn up at church. I had a sudden interest in sermons. And before that, I found them kind of boring. Um, but I wanted to kind of engage and, and be there and soak up every chance that I had to get to know God more. There's a sense of excitement about it all. God felt close. And then at some point, God lets go of the seat. We get the wobbles. We cry out wondering where God is. And yet there comes a point where if we rely on our first feelings about God, if we stay there, then we'll stagnate. We'll stop maturing in our faith. God has so much more in store for us. And for us to grow, steps back to teach us. And one of the ways that God does this is he purges us from our feelings about him and our ideas, our thoughts about him. Because the truth is sometimes we mix up our feelings about God with God, with God himself. I've recently enjoyed reading a fascinating book by two American university professors, one of law and the other of social psychology, Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt, and it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's about uh, the university and the state of the university in America. And in the opening chapters, they explore what they call three bad ideas. These three bad ideas are ideas that they believe are harmful uh, ideas that are prevalent in our culture, and they stunt our emotional maturity and the common good. And one of these is titled, The Untruth of Emotional Reasoning, Always Trust Your Feelings. And I think they name here one of the biggest challenges in our contemporary context. We're encouraged to trust our feelings, to place them really high. We're encouraged to lean into them, as a compass for all that is good and true and beautiful. And so if we're not feeling it when it comes to church or reading the Bible or even being a follower of Jesus, if we're not feeling it, this logic says tap out, let it go. It mustn't be right. Give it up. This, I think, is so deeply unhelpful. Because in the dark night of the soul, in spaces where we feel like God is absent, and we can't feel his presence. God teaches us that our feelings about him are not the same as him. Our feelings about God aren't God. We may have had amazing experiences with God in worship, or out on a hike, or as we read the Gospels. Yet these things are what they are. They are experiences and feelings of God, not God himself. It seems to me one of the most helpful ways that God teaches us the difference is by letting us walk through a desert absent of feelings. The dark night of the soul is a space where our ideas about God too will be challenged. Any boxes that we've put God in will be stretched and will be broken. 
Dr. Gerald May describes the dark night of the soul as an ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments and compulsions and empowered to live and love more freely. It's a time of God redefining our desires, shaping our loves, a time where God steps back in order to set us free from the idols to which we've become attached. Our overconfidence in ourselves, it makes us keenly aware that we're not in control, uh, that we cannot save ourselves. How do we know that we're in this dark night? How do we know we're in the space of the dark night of the soul? Well, there are lots of reasons God uh, can feel absent in our lives. Maybe we're in such a hurry that we're just not paying attention. We're busy with work, busy with kids, digitally distracted by multiple grabs for our attention. And so we're just not paying attention. I remember a few years ago speaking to a friend of mine, uh, you know, he's in his 50s, and he was saying, you know, Josh, when I had kids, young children in the house, it was kind of like I got on a treadmill and it was turned up to like the highest setting and I ran on that treadmill. And then I got off it 10 years later and I had a conversation with Jesus saying, hey, so let's catch up where we left off 10 years ago. Let's work this thing out. And I know, you know, like lives get busy and full, but that just made me feel deeply concerned. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. And so, you know, there are times where we just check out. There are times where we get so busy um, with good things. Um, you know, we get so distracted. Or maybe there's sin in our life. Uh, maybe we're disconnected from God. There might be a breakdown in our relationship with God through our willful turning away from Him. And I think that's really important to think about that too. Not every time that we don't experience, you know, not every time we experience God's perceived absence is the dark night of the soul, right? Uh, so maybe we've disconnected. There are a whole host of reasons we could go into. But what defines the dark night particularly? Well, one of the most important aspects is this. It's usually accompanied by a deep thirst for God and wanting to be with God and to experience God alongside, at the same time, a profound sense of God's absence. Both of those elements together. In the dark night, there may be a sense of grief that God just feels absent. We heard that articulated in the psalm. I, you know, I cry in the night, I stretch out my arms to you, God, but you're not there. In the dark night, there's often also a lower desire for all of the pleasures and things of the world and a heightened desire for God. In the dark night, you know, we might be doing all the right things, going to church, praying, reading our Bible, and yet it all feels arid or dry. Kiwi spiritual director John Franklin, he puts it this way. He says, Obviously enough, sin, weakness and laziness can be a straight path into the desert. Even physical or emotional stress can take their toll. In all these cases, confession, repentance and prayers for help and healing are all appropriate and often transforming. But what I'm speaking of here is quite different. What I'm trying to describe is the desert the Spirit himself has led us into. And the sure sign that it is the Spirit is the even vague realisation that it is God alone who can fulfil us. Despite everything, we find it's him we want. We echo the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and being with you, I desire nothing on earth. The dark night's an opportunity for growth that God leads us into intentionally. It describes the hidden work of God in, uh, in times where it feels like God has taken his hand off the seat, you know, taken his hand off our lives. So what do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves in the dark night? For those of us who think we might be there, what do we do when we're just not feeling it? Well, my dad's an air traffic controller and he's done it his whole life. And I grew up with him telling me about planes and weather patterns. And I remember him um, showing me as a kid all of the radar instruments that he used in flight and being like really super excited about this. And when there's low visibility, these instruments are particularly crucial in helping pilots work out uh, where to go. The dark night of the soul, I think, is a little like flying in low visibility. It sounds terrifying, yet there are instruments in place which will prevent us from crashing and burning. So four things, I think, that are vital in this season. And the first is this, trust in the revelation of God in Scripture. We can live into what God has said in the past to us. We can trust in the promises of God for us, even if emotionally we're not connecting with them, even if they feel far off. To come back time and time again to the scriptures, to the promises of God. That's number one. The second thing is to be in community together. We need relationships to hold us. And I actually think part of this in a stage like the dark night of the soul Maybe finding a spiritual director or a mentor to help us. Actually, I'd strongly recommend doing so. So that's the second thing. The third thing is liturgy. Actually, liturgy can hold us in this space. When we don't have the words to pray or when we don't feel like it, uh, a prayer book can be an amazing resource, particularly in these times. We can pray these words. We can uh, say out loud what we believe about God, even when we don't feel it. And the fourth thing is to hold a posture of trust in God, to actually accept the invitation rather than push, push back, to lean into what God is doing. St. John of the Cross gives some advice for those in the dark night. He encourages people in this space to allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. Well, you know, that might be difficult when we're panicking about this. But there's an invitation here to allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. He invites us, in other words, just to simply embrace the process. One of my favorite images of God in Scripture is the image of God as the potter and us as the clay. And we find this in Jeremiah chapter 18. Over the last couple of years, I've taken up uh, pottery as a hobby. And so our house is full of wobbly cups and bowls as I learn the craft. And I think there's a wisdom in this picture of pottery. The process of making a pot involves both times when the potter's hands are all over the clay, uh, where the potter's pushing and forming and shaping the clay, and this happens early in the process. But then there are times when the clay must just sit on the shelf to dry out before it's trimmed, and then again before it's fired in the kiln. There are multiple steps through this process where the potter takes his hands entirely off the clay. A Catholic spiritual director, Thomas Green, talking about this image of the potter and the clay in the dark night of the soul, 
he says this. We can learn to be at home in the dark because we are sure in faith that the potter is truly shaping the clay, even though the clay sees nothing of what is happening. Then our dryness is no longer desolation because we're not anxious, fearful, troubled by the dark. In fact, we come to love the dark because we realize that the light is very close and that our experience of darkness is the only sure way to the eternal vision we so greatly desire. Nor would we rush the potter, since we begin to realize that the vessel he is shaping is intended to last for eternity. In fact, we find the need to pray more, not to experience his presence now, but to give him all the time we can to shape the vessel into which he will delight to pour his love. I love that. Again, an invitation to trust. But what about those of us who are not in the dark night of the soul? And likely that's a major proportion of us in this moment. My advice is this, hold on to these ideas for when you face it. It's important for us to have a category and a language for dealing with this kind of experience of the perceived absence of God. I was in Christchurch when we had the earthquakes about a decade ago, and we didn't have a civil defence uh, style earthquake kit at my house. It wasn't very organised, um, and it would have been really handy, especially when the first earthquake happened at 4am in the morning, and there we were stumbling around in the dark when the power went out. A torch would have been a really good start. In many ways, having this language is kind of like having a spiritual version of that kit. So when we find ourselves in the dark, it's not completely disorienting. It's helpful, I think, for us to have a map for us to see these times where God feels absent as normal and is actually part of the journey. So when they come, we don't tap out, we don't give up. Also, there'll actually be people in our community who are going through this right now. And it's good if we understand it so we can be good friends so that we can disciple and encourage others through this journey. If you hear one thing today, I really hope you hear this. In times of God's perceived absence, when it feels like God is withdrawing, this doesn't mean God has given up on you. Often it means God is taking you deeper. Often it means God is taking you on a journey of transformation where your heart will be shaped by him and where you're formed in love. So you might love him more and you might love your neighbor more. Let's come back to John Mark Homer's definition, which I think is really helpful. The dark night of the soul is a season in our apprenticeship to Jesus where he intentionally takes away not his presence, but the felt sense of his presence in order to do a work of purgation and preparation in us for greater levels of intimacy, freedom, peace, and love. This is part of the journey in following in the way of Jesus Christ. And so I want to finish with some words of Teresa of Avila, which capture the sense um, of the space that we're invited into as we navigate what it means to trust God. Hear these words not as easy consolation, but as a prayer of trust in the midst of darkness. I want to pray these words. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing make you afraid. All things pass, but God is unchanging. Patience is enough for everything. You who have God lack nothing. God alone is sufficient.
Amen. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, Lots of love from our household to yours.